So if you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. We'll read from, uh, from those verses in just a moment. Uh, but first, let's begin with a test. Something everybody always gets very excited about, right? Uh, a U.S. civics test, to be exact. How many of you can list the three branches of the American government? Yeah, okay. Well, the three branches, if you can't list them, are the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branches. And the purpose of this division of powers in the U.S. Constitution was to safeguard the country against the tyrannical colonial rule that America experienced under the thumb of the British monarchy. It was to prevent that moving forward. So the three branches all have different duties, and they work together to keep each other under control. And the official term for that whole idea is called checks and balances. And none of the three can take over on their own. At least they shouldn't be able to. They are subject to the other two branches in one way or another. And the U.S. government cannot operate correctly unless all three of those branches are doing their jobs well. When one acts corruptly, the whole country will be affected in some way. All three must work together to do their jobs well if they're going to lead the country. Well, ancient Israel had a very similar division of duties within the leadership. They had prophets, they had priests, and they had kings. And 1 Samuel is largely focused on the development of the monarchy, of the kings of Israel. But the priests and the prophets play a major role as well. Because the best king could not lead Israel well unless there were also faithful priests and prophets in place. And so what we will see in this passage is the need for a holy priesthood and the preparation for the coming king. So because the Lord is holy, we need a holy priest. So with that, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish. He would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. The Lord put them to death. Now the young man Samuel both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I to the house of your father all my offerings by fire, from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it for me, for those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then, in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. So hopefully, as we read along, you picked up on the fact that that is a very uh, intense passage, that that is a very serious passage. And for that reason, I think one of the biggest themes we need to address first in the first point is that because the Lord is holy, you must repent. So we need to remember our background of the opening of 1 Samuel. This was a dark time in Israel's history. This was the era of the judges. Israel was rebellious and they were constantly facing oppression and subjugation as a punishment for their sin. Holiness and faithfulness to God was rare. And in the first chapter and a half of 1 Samuel, we saw one of the few faithful families in all of Israel at that time, Hannah and Elkanah. But now we see that even the leaders of Israel at this time are evil and corrupt. The priests were supposed to be the ones to teach the people of Israel about God and about his law. They were meant to be the spiritual safeguards and shepherds for all the twelve tribes. But now we see that the sons of Eli were anything but holy. The law of God gave them instructions for what meat the priests had a right to take for themselves. The whole inheritance of the Levites was that they ministered in the sanctuary of God 
and they were provided for through the sacrificial system. As Israel brought in sacrifices, a part of it went to the priests for their food. That was how God provided for his priests. But Hophni and Phinehas, they were not pleased with this system. They went well beyond what they were allowed to take. And they figured out a way to rig the system so that they always got the best of the sacrifices for themselves. And their system, if you didn't notice, was a very sophisticated one. Give us what we want or we'll take it from you anyway. Subtle, no? But consider for a moment how outrageous this evil was. They were supposed to be the religious leaders. They're supposed to be the ones regulating worship, the ones protecting the purity of the people of Israel. They were charged with keeping the sanctuary of Yahweh. They were meant to be the holiest people in the nation. But it is these spiritual leaders who are acting corruptly and making the rest of Israel look like angels. And I can assure you that at this time in Israel's history, they were anything but angels. They were anything but pure and perfect. So Israel was in a horrible, dark situation, and they were stuck under evil leadership. And as if the evil we've already listed wasn't enough, Hophni, Phinehas, and their buddies went even further. They prevented the people from making their offerings to God. The fat portions of the sacrifices were supposed to be burned as an offering to the Lord. No one else had a right to the fat portions. They were for God alone. But the sons of Eli were greedy. They wanted what belonged to God. They wanted the best. They wanted first honors. They wanted luxury, power, and control. And so they rigged the system so they could get what belonged to God alone. Because really they were their own gods. And the narrator clues us in just in case we haven't understood what was going on. In verse 17 he says their sin was very great. They thought that they could get away with whatever they wanted. But the truth is that God was watching everything they did. And more importantly, he knew their hearts behind the actions as well. And the implication for that is that judgment is coming for the sons of Eli. But we have to ask the question, why such reckless evil and contempt for God? Did Hophni and Phinehas really think that they could get away with everything they were doing? Well, the author of 1 Samuel, he gives us two explanations. First, he says that they were worthless men. Now, the Hebrew word for worthless has already been used in the Bible a few times. In Deuteronomy 13, it refers to anyone who will try to lead Israel into idolatry. It again appears in Judges 19 to describe the evil Gibeonites who raped and murdered the Levite's concubine, which then led to an all-out civil war. Then in 1 Samuel 1.16, Hannah used the word when Eli rebuked her for being a drunk. She asked the priest not to consider her a worthless woman. Well, Hannah wasn't worthless. She was deeply troubled and pious in that part of the text. But now Eli's sons are called worthless. Eli was quick to consider Hannah worthless when he thought she was a drunk. But Eli failed to recognize that his own sons were actually worthless men. Well, second, these sons did not know Yahweh. Eli's sons knew about the law. They knew what was required of them in their service. Their problem was not in knowledge, but in understanding and obedience. The root of their evil and abuses of power is that they did not truly believe in God as their God. 
Because at the end of the day, they worshipped themselves. They were stuck in the dead deadness of their sin. And that is exactly where they wanted to be. They did not love God whom they stole from and dishonored. They didn't know God and so they became worthless. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new forms of evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, merciless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things are worthy of death, they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. If you don't know, that was from Romans chapter 1. And it applies very well to the two sons of Eli. And such is the fate of all who reject God. So what we see here is that Israel was in dire straits. They needed faithful priests to guide, teach, and perform the ceremonial functions. This is the need of the passage. Israel needs a faithful priest, a better priest. But for the time being, they had abusive and evil priests. And this abuse of power is clearly nothing new, nor has it ceased since. We see abuse and failure at every level of our government. But a more direct parallel is to the visible church of God. The larger church experiences failure of leadership in many ways, and even the best churches have leaders who fall into sin. So whether it is leading poorly, vices, or some form of abuse, sin crops up often. But there's also failure in leaders who have chosen to honor the culture's values above the truths of Scripture. Now, there are varying degrees to cultural compromise, but at any level, it is a failure of spiritual leadership in the church. Pastors, elders, and deacons who allow the church to disobey the commands of Scripture are modern examples of the sons of Eli. We also see this type of spiritual abuse in health and wealth churches. We see it in healing ministries and TV evangelists chasing money and fame. How many TV evangelists have become incredibly rich and corrupt by pretending to speak for God? The answer is a lot. Those are probably the most egregious examples that we see of spiritual abuse. But this is also a warning to you as an individual Because the indictment against Eli's sons was not just failure in leadership, but failure of the heart. They wanted what belonged to God, so they took what belonged to God. So the question for you is whether you treat the Lord with contempt, as Hophni and Phinehas did. You do not have to be a priest or a pastor in order to follow their evil example. And Christ demands the totality of your life to be submitted to him. Your body, your mind, and your soul must be used as instruments for righteousness. So if you're holding anything back or you're imitating Ananias and Sapphira from Acts and lying about your devotion to the Lord, then you're guilty in many ways of the same crime as these two worthless men we've been talking about. Are you cheating the Lord in your tithing? Do you purposely look for ways to avoid serving in the church? Have you failed to love and serve the Lord as a parent, as a spouse, as an employee or employer? You cannot outsmart God and he will not be pleased with selfish offerings. If you are not united to Christ, then you are 
worthless, and judgment is coming swiftly. And going back to God and repentance is the only answer and the only hope there is. That leads us to the second point. Because the Lord is holy, you must honor him. So this evil of these two sons, it was no secret. Anyone who went to the temple realized that these priests were anything but holy men. The sons of Eli were the talk of the town, but even the talk of the whole of Israel. Everyone knew that they were doing these wicked things, that they were cheating cheating worshipers, and that they were stealing from God. But there's more we find out as we move through the text that the author didn't tell us initially. Apparently, in addition to all the awful evils they committed in regards to the sacrifice, they were also engaged in sexual immorality. They were sleeping with the women who served at the temple. And it's unclear whether this was even consensual or not, but regardless, no matter what, it was a horrible thing they were doing. Instead of the servants of the temple praising God and living holy lives, they were desecrating the tabernacle of Yahweh. See the great holy priests of Shiloh in all their glory. And as the infamy of these crooks grew in Israel, Eli heard of their exploits. Notice what verse 22 says. Eli didn't hear this report once and respond in what he heard. He kept hearing. He had known and heard about this wickedness for a while. He undoubtedly saw their behavior as well. He would have had to have been present. And we can only wonder why it took so long for Eli to go and rebuke his sons if he knew about their evil. Eli is definitely not a prime example of holiness. And yet he does not seem to be that bad of a man himself. But he let his sons commit these horrible acts of blasphemy while serving in the temple of God. At best, Eli was just too old and tired to deal with this situation. But it seems that Eli was old, ineffective, and lacked any kind of depth of zeal for the Lord's holiness. And once Eli finally did rebuke his sons, there are a few things we can note about his attempt First, notice the reason he rebukes them. The reason that Eli finally goes to rebuke him is because of how public their outrageous sins had become. Eli's concern and motivation for confronting this evil of his sons was less to promote the holiness of the temple and more because of the shame of a bad reputation before the people. His concern is about the report that he heard, not that they had horrifically transgressed the laws of God, and the requirements for the priesthood. Well, second, Eli minimizes the sin he is confronting. He emphasizes the report he hears from the people, but he minimizes the root cause of the report, which is their sin. Hophni and Phinehas, they not only failed to perform their priestly duties, but they also broke the law of God concerning his sacrifices. They mistreated and they extorted worshipers at the temple. They took the fat portions which belonged to the Lord alone, and then they slept with the female servants. Now, that's a horrible list of sins to read out for a servant of God. But Eli doesn't even list them in his rebuke. He just says such things. What we see here is one of the weakest rebukes in Scripture for some of the most heinous sins of any leader in Israel's history. And the third thing we can note is that despite the previously mentioned failures in Eli's rebuke, there is a positive element in it. 
Eli did want them to turn from their sins so that they would avoid the judgment of God. So for all of his shortcomings, Eli did appear to trust in the Lord and want his sons to do the same. And so he asked them what they will do if they sin against the Lord. And Eli did here recognize something crucial about salvation. We need someone to intercede for us. And his final question in verse 25 expects a negative answer, meaning no normal human being can do so. There is no imperfect man who can intercede for us before God. Only Christ can intercede for us and rescue us from the wrath that we are owed. And all who trust in Christ have him as a mediator forever. But the sons of Eli, they had no intention of repenting or believing in God. It was God's will to put them to death for their sin. Weak though it may have been, Eli's rebuke was a call to repentance and faith. But despite Eli's warning, his sons continued in their wickedness, but not for long. And if you look in verse 27, it begins a terrifying section of this story where it says, And there came a man from God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord. This is the prophetic formula in the Old Testament. A man of God here refers to a prophet coming to Eli. The Lord's someone to Eli to give him a very specific message. It was not the prophet's personal words. A herald in the ancient world would arrive on scene with a message from their ruler, speak in the first person, and say, this is what my master has said. And the same is true for all of God's prophets. And so when we see, thus says the Lord, that means that these words are coming directly from God to Eli. And more often than not, when a prophet came to give you a message in the Old Testament, it was not good news. The very fact that this is the way God spoke to Eli shows us something. It's unusual in many ways that God didn't speak to Eli in any kind of direct way. Completely indirect, sending a prophet who's not even named. This was the high priest at Shiloh to represent the people before the Lord. But he was so ineffective and his sons were so wicked that the Lord did not even speak to Eli. Instead, the Lord sends a prophet in order to indict Eli and his sons for their sin and to lay down their sentence. But the Lord did not immediately start with judgment, but first gave a historical prologue. God reminded Eli that he had been faithful to Eli's house and to all of Israel. God had never once failed to uphold his promises to the house of Moses and Aaron. He rescued his Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he made Aaron the head of a priestly line. Aaron was given the immense privilege to serve God as a priest, and that right was given to his descendants after him. They were given the right to receive and to perform the sacrifices at the temple year by year, day by day. But Eli and his sons failed to perform the task assigned to them. Hophni and Phinehas instead scorned the sacrifices of God and dishonored him. Meanwhile, Eli chose to allow his sons to continue in their evil instead of honoring God and his worship. And what we see in the text is that Eli apparently benefited from his son's evil as well, which may be another reason why he was hesitant to confront them. The word kavod is the Hebrew word for honor. It actually means heavy or weighty. So there's really a play on words going on in the text. Eli made himself heavy with the sacrifices 
instead of giving weight to God and his glory. And later we'll find out that Eli was actually very overweight. So really the full picture of Eli is an old obese failure who chose to allow sin and evil to continue because it was easier and benefited him more than confronting sin, than maintaining the purity of the temple, which was his task. So while the greater evils may have been committed by his sons, Eli was still the high priest. And leaders are responsible, at least to some degree, for the sins of their inferiors. And you cannot turn a blind eye and expect to be cleared of wrong, nor can you only give half-hearted rebukes and think you are, you are absolved of guilt. The sons of Eli's sin became Eli's, because he was their father and their high priest. Eli and his sons together cheated Israel and the Lord's sanctuary. And the Lord does not allow his name to be profaned. He zealously defends his holiness. And in the words of Eli, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? When verses 30 through 36, the man of God arrives at the sentence for the wickedness of Eli and his sons. And this is not a trivial judgment rendered against the sons of Eli and the priesthood. To put it simply, they are cursed and their, their line will come to an end. And it's important to note here that God is not undoing any promises in this judgment. Well, back to the judgment. Because of their unfaithfulness, their line will come to an end. All of Eli's descendants will die young. And the final fulfillment of this oracle doesn't occur for many chapters until 1 Samuel 22, when King Saul kills all the priests at Nob for helping David while he was on the run. Those priests were Eli's descendants. There was only one priest who escaped that slaughter, and his name was Abiathar. Family lineage was everything in Israel. So to have your line in was the worst curse that could come upon your family. And for their great evil, that is exactly what the Lord did to Eli's line. And all the judgment on them would begin with Hophni and Phinehas. They would both die on the same day. And whenever Eli saw his sons die, he would know that God's curse against his family was real. Now, looking forward in the book in chapter 4, the ark is going to be captured. And when the ark is captured, Hophni and Phinehas are killed. And when Eli hears about the capture of the ark and the death of his sons, he falls backwards off of where he was sitting and he breaks his neck and dies. The judgment against Eli and his line came swiftly. Because the Lord defends his holiness and he will not be mocked by any man, especially not his ministers. So I want you to note one more thing in verse 36 before we go on to our final point. Hannah's prayer in the first part of chapter 2 contains many of the themes of First and Second Samuel. So if you go back and you look at chapter 2, verse 5, and then you go forward and look at chapter 2, verse 36... And here's what I want you to see from that. The Lord turns the successes of the wicked into judgment, while at the same time lifting up the weak and, uh, and hungry even who honor him. Wealth, power, and ability mean nothing if you dishonor God. So do you honor God with your life? If you honor him with your life, then you must be holy. And that's the last point. Because the Lord is holy, you must be holy. 
So this passage contains one more element which we've really only hinted at thus far. Not everyone serving at the temple at this time was failing in their task. Samuel was serving at the temple faithfully. And we see this first in verse 11 where Samuel is said to be ministering to Yahweh. Then in verses 18 through 21, it shows us the continuing faithfulness of Hannah and Elkanah and three more statements about Samuel. First, he was ministering before the Lord in his linen ephod. His clothing was similar to that what the high priest would have worn and highlights that he is set apart for ministry. Unlike the other priests at Shiloh, Samuel was holy. Well, second, we see that Samuel grew in God's presence. Now, that does not just mean that he was growing up. Samuel was maturing and he was growing in his faith. And then lastly, in verse 26, we're told that Samuel grew in both stature and favor with God and man. Samuel was becoming a man and a holy one at that. Israel was being robbed and abused by Eli's sons, but Samuel was the antithesis of those crooks. Those who came to Shiloh for worship knew that there was at least one godly man serving there. And the growth of Samuel's reputation should not be surprising to us, especially when we see the pathetic state of those around him. But the more important thing to note from verse 26 is that Samuel grew in favor and stature with the Lord. The sincerity of his heart and his zeal for God was growing. He was being prepared for an important task, even as he already served in the temple. So Samuel may have been trained as a priest, but the majority of his life he served as Israel's final judge. God was preparing him to be the final leader of Israel before the institution of the monarchy. And how fitting it is that he raised up a judge who was also a priest. Godly and effective leadership in Israel required both the priesthood and the king to be holy. The priests were to be holy and the king was to be holy. If the priesthood fell into evil, the king had a duty to call him back to faithfulness. The priests were to assist the king in pursuing holiness and justice. Prophets were ruled by the king, spiritually fed by the, uh, and grown by the priests, and capable of rebuking and delivering God's word to both. Samuel then acted as both a prophet, a priest, and a proto-king to prepare the way for the monarchy in Israel. And so what we really see in Samuel is a threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. And he's not the only one in the Old Testament who served in all three of those aspects. The patriarchs of Genesis are often served or often described as serving in those ways. Moses served in those ways. Joshua and some of the other judges in some way or another acted as all three. But Samuel sits in our particular position in the history of Israel that makes his role so important. The rest of Old Testament Israel's history would not see another man serve in all three roles. God used Samuel in a special way in order to prepare Israel for a king. Samuel served as a prophet, priest, and judge because Israel needed a holy prophet, a holy priesthood, and a holy king in order to establish a holy reign in Israel. And it's only as all three of those offices are fulfilled that the reign of God begins among his people in a full way. And yet for all the good the Lord worked through Samuel, he was still imperfect and he still one day succumbed to death. So the immediate historical context for Samuel's importance is the preparation for the monarchy 
in Israel. But the larger theological context is that Samuel operated as a type of the holy leader that Israel truly needed. Samuel acted as a prophet, but Christ is the perfect prophet as a living word. Samuel served as a priest, but Christ is the eternal high priest who offered a perfect one-time sacrifice for his elect. Samuel served as a judge or proto-king, but Christ rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and sits at the Father's right hand ruling. Samuel was just a type of the greater man to come who would prepare, inaugurate, and rule over the kingdom of God forever. And we see a hint of this in verse 35. Amidst the judgment on Eli, God also promised that he would raise up the right priest. Now, the immediate historical fulfillment of this promise was the priest Zadok. He was a descendant of Eleazar and served during King David's reign. Zadok, becoming high priest, fulfilled the promise to Aaron and Eleazar. And he served before King David. And in that we see another portion of verse 35 fulfilled. But Zadok and his priestly line would eventually fail. And even as the kings would be unseated by Babylon, the priestly line would fail. Israel needed a holy priest. They needed one even holier than Zadok. They needed Christ to be their priest. And the church today is no different. You need a holy priest. You need a holy prophet. And you need a holy king. You cannot fulfill those roles for yourself any more than you can make yourself holy. But maybe you're trying to make yourself holy. If you're trying to clean yourself up before coming to God, stop. You cannot clean yourself up at all. Did you trust alone and faith alone at first, but now you're trying to earn your way to heaven? Stop. You cannot earn anything on your own but judgment. Do you say you belong to Jesus, but you refuse to yield to his reign and choose instead to be your own God? You have no power. Or maybe you sincerely love Christ, but you feel stuck in your sin and your failure. And at times we can wrestle for so long that we forget who it is that's truly doing the work in our hearts. And so we become frustrated and discouraged because we have failed in our sanctification. But it's not your job to make yourself holy on your own. Discouragement and spiritual torture are what await if you continue in your own power. Regardless of where we are, we must remind ourselves of the core truths of the gospel again and again every single day. Only Christ can change our hearts, can root out sin, and can prepare us for glory. There's no politician who can change your heart or rule you in holiness. There are no famous personalities who can help you. Famous evangelists and preachers cannot even personally help you. There's only one man who can fulfill these three offices for you. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that you could not. His body was broken for you so that your body would not have to be broken. His blood covers over your sins and cleanses you completely and perfectly. He was raised from the dead so that you might be raised in newness of life now and with a glorified body later. And he reigns so that you can walk confidently with your God as he changes you and as he makes you holy. If you're resting in Christ, then holiness and change will come. The fruit in our lives, it does not come from us. It comes from God. And if he has worked in your heart, then you will bear fruit and he will make you holy. 
But the key to that holiness will not come from our own efforts or plans. No, the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit at work within you is the only thing that will produce that. And as we conclude and think about this passage as a whole, this is a very difficult text because it deals with the serious sins and failures of Eli and his sons. Israel was suffering under sin. But the beauty and the joy of the text is that God was preparing a Savior to rescue Israel from her spiritual lethargy and rebellion. Now, the immediate Savior was Samuel, but he was only a type in the end. He could not rescue Israel from her sins, though he was a holy man. But he was holy only because of the true and final fulfillment to which he pointed. Only Christ is able to operate as a perfect prophet, priest, and king. And only Christ can take broken, backwards, and dead people like us and bring us to life. Only Christ can take someone like you and me and make us alive. Only Jesus can cleanse us and present us to God the Father as pure and undefiled. Samuel provided hope for Israel during a dark time. But that hope was nothing compared to the full hope of life that we have in Christ. We have a hope that is undefiled, perfect, glorious, and kept in heaven for us now. The riches of the love of Christ are ours through faith. That glorious and that perfect love of the Son of God is yours. Jesus and his love are your glory, and they are your hope. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our all in all. That there is nothing else we need outside of you. That you are the fullness of our redemption, of our glory, and of our life. Lord, help us to cast aside all the things that we want to put our trust in. Help us to reject the hopes of the world that are false. And help us instead to rest in the work of Christ, our perfect prophet, priest, and king. And to him we give glory and praise this morning in his name.